If you will open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at that passage in a moment. Would you permit me to pray for us as we begin again? Father, we, we look to you because you are the source of life. You are the giver of truth. You are our only hope. And if anything good is to happen in this hour, it will be because you have accomplished it. And so we pray that you would do that. We don't deserve your work. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your conviction. We deserve only judgment. But we ask as children that you would not treat us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities, but as children whom you love. Respond in justice according to the justice of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, I am very glad that sports season has once again come upon us. I don't think Tony Bowman is here tonight, so I can just say, baseball does not count. There's nothing to watch. I would love to watch baseball if it was 45 minutes long or if I had three hours a day, 185 days a year to sit and, well, the drought is over. But for some of us sports fans, that simply means we have more anxiety to deal with. You may not be that kind of sports fan. I'm a recovering sports fan addict or something. Um, but, but it's a time of anxiety. My, my, my late grandfather... Um, Beverly Sullivan. Uh, he raised me a UNC fan, and he was an avid North Carolina fan, and he lived and he died by the success of those Tar Heels. And he would get so upset losses that it would affect his health his, as he aged. His blood pressure would change. His pulse, his pulse would would go up significantly. So uh, that his doctor told him that he could no longer watch games. Uh, this is a true story. And uh, so my aunt, his daughter, who uh, was just as significant in raising me, uh, a North Carolina fan, she, uh, she began to tape the games for him. And her strategy was to only show him the games that would not upset him. Which is very few, because if you're a sports fan, you know, just because you win doesn't mean that you played well, right? You have to win in a particular way, right? The refs have to behave in a particular way, right? And so she would show uh, the wins and the wins that were not close, because she could tell him, Pawpaws, they're going to win by seven in the fourth quarter. They will, they will have a go-ahead field goal with four and a half, or a, a, a touchdown of four and a half minutes left, and they will win. And it would not matter. He would be just as anxious, just as upset. And he, he had a, 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 a stuffed referee that he could hit. Yeah, which is, which is great. And, and so he, he, he would obviously, you know, he'd watch the wins if they were blowouts. Right? And the goal was to, it was to take out the suspense. It was to minimize 
the drama, right? And, and you can still very much enjoy sports, even if you know the outcome. I found that for me, uh, I sometimes will often rec- record a game, and I'll just skip forward to the end because I just don't, I'm just not in the mood. Like, I got too many problems in my life. I don't got time to deal with the Tar Heels fumbling the ball, right? So I'll just look to the end, and, right? And it totally takes out the suspense, and you might be able, to, be able to enjoy it some, but it's a very different experience, right? It's very different to watch a game unfold as it is being played. The drama, the sense of accomplishment and failure, the, the victory seems far more significant than even if you're watching it on a 30-minute delay. Have you noticed that? As New Testament Christians, we live on the winning side of the greatest victory in the history of the world. And it is a victory that is so full of wonderful blessings for us. Forget about your parade through your city or your championship t-shirt or the bragging rights or whatever it is. I mean, we're talking major victories. But just like watching a videotaped victory, there can be a temptation, I think, to sort of downplay this win. That there can be a temptation for us, here we are 2,000 years removed from, from the death of Christ, to where we might miss out on the drama, miss out on the heroics, miss out on the displays of athleticism and strength. In other words, I think we can miss out on the glory. I think there's a danger there. And if we do that, we will fail to appreciate what has been accomplished. Tonight we are concluding our study on the covenants and over the last 10 weeks we've been talking about uh, the covenants and we've looked at them from a high view and then we looked at them one at a time and then we zoomed in on the new covenant for four or five weeks and talked about a lot of the impact and, and it's sort of been like going back and watching the tape. Even though we know what's going to happen, we know how the story's going to end, we know that God's going to fulfill his covenant, and there's a temptation for us to just be like, oh yeah, Jesus fulfills it, oh yeah, like that's old, right? I mean, Paul even says it's an obsolete covenant, so why would we think about it? But I think we've seen, I hope that we have seen value in doing this. Because not only does it help us understand our Bibles, but I hope that you have seen with me this glory of God. The glory of a God who is a covenant-keeping God. Because I don't know about you, but I really don't want to miss out on any of the glory that God has revealed to us. And the covenants are a major part of that. You don't want to miss any of the heroic plays, any of the details of the victory. We want to appreciate it so that we can fully celebrate and give glory to the hero. And looking back through the history of the scriptures is part of how we do that. And so tonight, as we conclude our study of the covenants, particularly the new covenant, we're actually going to circle back around and consider this. How has every one of the covenants been fulfilled by Jesus Christ? How We've looked at each one, right? The covenant of creation, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel, the covenant with David, and then the new covenant. And now we're going to look and see how Jesus fulfills each one of those covenants. Now, if we were to hang our hat on one New Testament text, 
I'm going to suggest 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's easy to remember. You might have it, a portion of it memorized. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says this. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. He goes on to say that is why that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put on us his seal and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now there's lots of new covenant language wrapped up in that, but I really want to draw your attention to that first sentence. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen. They all find their fulfillment in Christ. That is, the birth and the death and the life and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God wins his victory. It is in Jesus Christ that God proves his character. And in doing so, not only does he win salvation for his people, (laughs) as if that were some small thing, But he also goes on to give us 10,000 reasons why we can trust him in the future. Because if you're persuaded that God keeps his word by this long history of faithfulness, then guess what? When the darkness comes, what will you be inclined to do? Trust the faithful, proven character of God. And so let's walk through each of these covenants. We'll do it briefly. We're not going to go into detail. Hopefully you've been here or caught some of this. Um, But let's look especially how Jesus is the hero or the fulfillment of the covenants. And what we'll do is we'll see that Jesus, in fact, is the pinnacle of the whole point of the Bible. That Jesus is what the Bible points to. It is the glory of Jesus Christ. So obviously we'll start at the covenant of creation. All right, and I'm going to try, I'm not going to give you a lot of references tonight. We've done lots of references in the past. We're not going to do lots tonight. So you're going to have to track with the storyline somewhat. But in the account of creation, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I have suggested that God, that the Bible portrays God placing Adam and Eve in the garden as priest kings. As priests, as people who are both priest and king. That is, in the garden, the garden is functioning like a temple. It was a temple. The whole world was the temple because that's where God was. And their role, their purpose in life was to be mediators of God's blessing. They were to interact with God and then relate the beauty and the glory and the goodness of God to all the world and how they ruled over the world. And the design was that for all of creation, from every child to every butterfly to every plant, all of it would flourish under their rule and dominion. But as you know, Instead of ruling well, they ruled poorly. They sinned. And so their rule did not bring blessing, but rather it quite literally, I mean, it very literally brought curses upon the whole world. And through their sin, uh, the world was plunged into chaos. However, when Jesus comes, he is presented to us, how? As the new Adam. 
And it's because Jesus fulfills God's original design for humanity. If you want to know what God designed humanity to be, if you want to know what a true human looks like, one who is fully alive, look at Jesus. He is the image of God's design for humanity. If you want to know what it is like to be fully alive, look at one who always obeyed, always did the Father's will. Think about this graphic picture. When Jesus, when Adam and Eve interacted with a serpent, the one they were supposed to have dominion over, what did they do? They were submitting to the serpent. Yet when Jesus interacted with the serpent in the wilderness, what did Jesus do? He obeyed. He resisted temptation. He didn't roll over and get dominated, but rather he stood up and showed dominion by submitting to God. He said no to sin. Jesus obeyed. Just as Adam was called the son of God, right? That's what Adam means. Was he uh, was he a good son? No, he was a disobedient son, but who was the obedient son? Jesus is called, he is, I mean, he is the son of God. He is the new and the better Adam. It is amazing to me that God's design is that he did not abandon his hope, his plan for human rule. Instead, what we see in the New Testament is that all who are united to Christ by faith will actually rule and reign with him. Did you catch that? God created Adam and Eve to rule. They didn't do it. Jesus comes on the scene. He does it right. Then we are united to him by faith in order to do what? Rule. He's restoring the world. I would argue even that Jesus fulfills the command that God gave Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. You remember that? Right? Gave them a purpose. Be fruitful and multiply. The vision there was that God wanted Adam and Eve to fill the world with other image bearers. Other people who would see and worship God as he is and reflect his image to the world. Well, Adam and Eve failed in this too, right? They had children, but they failed in producing image bearers. But oh, this is where Jesus succeeded, is it not? It is no accident That the effect of the gospel is that you and I are called sons and daughters. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks in one place that the children of God, the children that God has given to Christ, that by God's grace we are welcomed into God's family via adoption. This is a very real sense in which Jesus was fruitful and multiplied. Do you you catch what I'm saying, right, before we get weird, right? Jesus was fruitful and multiplied. He has billions of sons and daughters that are image bearers. And he's conforming us into what? The image of Christ. All of God's promises at creation are fulfilled in Jesus. They are yes and amen because when Jesus came, he came as the better Adam. 
What about the covenant with Noah? Now you'll remember the covenant with Noah was a little bit different from the other covenants in that its primary purpose was to be a covenant of preservation. That it was a platform, it was a, a temporary way for God to delay the total destruction of the world because of sin. Right? God has a plan for redemption, and if he was constantly killing off all the sinners in judgment, we wouldn't get very far, would we? So God, in his grace, established a way to hold off his wrath, to allow the world to go on without destruction, for the moon and the sun to function, for the water to stay in a certain place, for there to be only minimal chaos in spite of sin. And that because of this, God would, you could say in a sense, he was buying time. He was stabilizing the world until he, could, he would accomplish his grand purpose of redemption. Now there are lots of connections with the covenant of Noah and the covenant at creation. And we went through all those before. I won't go through them all again, but just to trigger your memory. Remember, Noah was also called to be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 9-1, like the, gets off the ark, first thing God tells him to do, go do what Adam was supposed to do. And he also told him to have dominion over the animals, right? He tells him if, if an animal kills a person, you kill the animal, right? He gives him, he gives him dominion. And so that connects, the, the covenant of Noah also connects to Christ in those same ways. So let's move on to the covenant with Abraham. The big covenant with Abraham. Now, we have said many times that you can structure the covenant of Abraham around three blessings. Offspring or children, land and blessing. All right? Uh, my kids have learned uh, uh, land, children, blessing. We quote, we chant it at our house. So that's what I'm used to saying. But we're going to say offspring. Let's think about offspring first. God promised to give Abraham children. Did God do that? Well, sure. Um, yeah, like the nation of Israel is the fulfillment of that. But even there, Jesus stands out as the true offspring of Abraham because he alone was the only obedient Israelite. Just think about it. Uh, think about the graphic story of Isaac as being like the thing to hang your hat on here. Isaac, the only son of Abraham, the one who he loved, his only begotten son. And think about how, how strongly he foreshadowed the true son of Abraham. Like we can't make light of that story. And all through the life of Abraham, there is a very strong connection between Abraham's obedience and the blessing that follows. Obedience always leads to blessing. And that was true in Abraham's life. And he was largely obedient. He was largely faithful. And so he was largely blessed. But did he still not fall short? I remember some awkward moments with him and his wife. He made some foolish decisions. But Jesus didn't. Jesus always trusted God, even when it seemed completely hopeless. Jesus was the obedient son of Abraham, the true son of Abraham. And it is the children of Jesus that are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. Paul says this explicitly. You can just listen as I read from Galatians 3. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
Okay? And that scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, the true children of Abraham are the ones who are those of faith. So, when you think about God's promise to Abraham, look out at the stars. Your descendants, old man, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And did God fulfill that with the nation of Israel? Yes. But how much more did he fulfill that with the church? Yes, he fulfilled it with the Israelites, but it wasn't because the Israelites were fertile. (laughs) You remember the Egyptians? Those Israelite women are very vigorous, right? But that's not how God fulfilled it. God fulfilled this through the death of Jesus. And through the death of Jesus, he has secured children from every age in history, from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity. There is none, there's no awkward, false religion designed by Satan that God has not gone into, snatched children out for himself. Because God is fulfilling this promise. You talk about triumph over Satan. Just think about what the gospel has done. Right? I mean, we could look at history from two angles. Like, in, in, in one sense, we can look and just think, oh, there's still so many unreached peoples and, and there's so much wickedness and there are still a, a couple billion people that don't have full access to like a gospel preaching church or don't know a Christian. We can think about it from that perspective and, and, and that's important. But there's also a whole, a whole other perspective where let's set aside the weaknesses of the church and think about how wild successful the gospel of Jesus Christ has been in one sense right how many billions of souls have been redeemed from the grip of Satan because of the work of Christ that seems significant to me right just think about how many Christians all throughout the ages have been jailbroken from Satan's dungeon. This has all happened through the work of Christ. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, and by God's grace, he has many, many brothers. I hope you are one of them. Let's think about the promise of land, right? We have offspring. What about, what about land? Obviously, in one sense, that was fulfilled in Canaan, which they lost, right? Um, but ultimately, I think even this promise was realized in Jesus, in that Jesus brought the new creation. You track, if you missed that point, you might be lost for a minute. Jesus fulfilled the promise for land in that Jesus brought the new creation. Let me explain. When Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrection signaled that a new dawn had come. It was the dawn of a new creation. Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. Why? He's the firstborn of the dead. He died and he lives again. His resurrection body is the first new creation body. And there are many, many, many more new creation bodies to come aren't there? Now, we're waiting for them, yes, but they are coming. Christ is making all things new, 
and the land promises that are, are fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And that has been extended far beyond Canaan. I mean, is Canaan enough for God? No, it extends to all the earth and all the universe. This is why when you read the last two chapters of the Bible, you'll see New Jerusalem, right? The people, the place of God's place, which is filled with God's people, is coming down from heaven. And what is it? Well, it's a city, but it's also the entire universe and the entire world, right? Because God's glory has filled it all. What about blessing? How has Jesus brought blessing? Oh man, that seems silly to even ask, doesn't it? That's easy. Who among Abraham's offspring was the greatest blessing in the world? Jesus, right? Philippians shows how Jesus was the obedient servant. And since he was the obedient servant, he has now been exalted. And in his exaltation, he will rule. Listen to a well-known text. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, we know that Jesus, the son of Abraham, is going to rule the world and under his rule, there will come massive worldwide blessing. Do you remember the biblical pattern that we've seen? We've seen this a lot. That as it goes with the king, so it goes with the nation. Good good king, prosperity for the nation. Bad king, struggle for the nation, right? We've seen this pattern again and again and again. Is Jesus a good king? Yeah, right? Imagine the blessing that will come in under his rule. Friends, that is coming. We experience it in part through our submission to him as we obey him as a church, but it is coming in a very visible way. And the whole world, the new world, will experience everlasting flourishing. And man, his subjects are going to be happy subjects. The subjects of Christ will enjoy peace We will enjoy true blessing because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic blessing. What about the covenant with Israel, right? Like the big big covenant that overshadows much of the Old Testament. Well, goodness, we could talk about that a lot. There's parts of the of the covenant with Israel, right? The co- or the covenant at Sinai or the covenant with Moses, however you want to think of it. Some are fulfilled and some are kind of just discarded. Some some are fulfilled and some are set aside because they've been replaced with a bigger, better, greater reality. Lots of these, but take for example the purity laws or the food laws, right? Did anyone read through, anybody reading through Deuteronomy as a part of the CBR? You're reading some of the stuff and you're like, baldness, that's a problem, right? You're trying to, how do we make sense of these? Well, these laws were designed to separate Israel from the nations. They were to highlight the importance of holiness, but for now, they've been set aside, can I get some amen from the bald folks in here, right? They, they've, been, they've been set aside. The same is true for physical circumcision. 
which has also been set aside and is no longer needed because in the new covenant, what matters is not physical circumcision, but a circumcision of what? The heart. Or what about the sacrificial system? Right, that's easy. The sacrificial system obviously was pointing to who? To Christ. But now that Christ has offered himself as the sacrifice for sin, it has no use and has been set aside. None of this should surprise us. We've quoted Hebrews 8.13 many times where the author says, in speaking of a, of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Right? He calls the old covenant obsolete. And it's obsolete, why? Because it pointed towards and anticipated a reality that has now come. So we don't no one gets excited about the shadow when you can see the real thing. Now that the new covenant is fulfilled, the old covenant has fulfilled its purpose. But let's look at a few of the ways that Christ has actually fulfilled the old covenant. One is in the temple, the tabernacle or the temple, where Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Right? Think of what's the temple? It's the place where humanity can meet with God. Well, who is Jesus? He is the way to God. He is the place where you can meet with God, right? You remember when Jesus was speaking of his body, he made lots of people angry when he said, destroy it in three days, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What was he talking about? His body, his person, himself. You see, we understand that ultimately the work of Jesus Christ was not even to be the temple, but to build a temple, to establish a temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the first, the most important, the primary block for this building. Paul says we are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this is why our bodies are called temples, because the Spirit dwells in us. This is why the church is called a temple, because the Spirit dwells in us, right? Jesus has fulfilled the temple. Now, because of Christ, God and man can dwell together. Nobody dies. Of Christ. There are lots of other ways that Jesus fulfilled the covenant with Israel. You'll remember that... Uh, God called nation, the nation of Israel, right? The nation, he called them his firstborn son. Well, obviously, Jesus is God's firstborn son. And we become sons by faith. And not only see that Jesus fulfills the law, but we see that Jesus fulfills the demands of the law. He fulfills the covenant of Israel itself. And as we've seen, he ushers in a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way to relate to God. Jesus fulfills the demands of the law. And in doing so, he enables us 
to walk in obedience to the law because why? We have new hearts. And that law is written on our hearts and we have the power of the Spirit who enables us to obey. All of these glorious benefits which we've explored for four weeks are realized because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But there's also, and that's fast, but we've already done it, but there's also the covenant with David, right? There are many streams of the covenants that all come together in how Jesus fills the Davidic covenant. I mean, there's a lot of them. And I won't trace them all again. Let me just try to summarize it from a big picture. Remember, God created Adam as a son, the son of God, to be a mini-king. Son and king. Those are the two words we need. Son and king. That king was supposed to rule over the world, but he didn't do that. So one day, God promised that there would be an offspring that comes from Adam. And he would crush the serpent, right? A seed, a son. You remember? We later learned that this son will come specifically through Abraham's family. And it does. Because remember, God calls the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, his son. But later, when the time came to crown a king, God narrows his focus in on that particular king. Listen to the, we've read this many times, in 2 Samuel 7, God speaks of the king saying, I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. So now, so Adam is the son, there's a promised son, Israel's the son, now the king is the son. We have woven throughout the covenants this anticipation of one who is a son and one who is a king. One who reflects his father like a son and one who rules over the world. Well, can we not see how Jesus is the son king? Right? The one who perfectly displays his father and the one who is the king? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Many of us, or some of us, read uh, Revelation 5 this morning in community Bible reading. Revelation 5, we have this stunning scene of what's taking place in the throne room of heaven. Right? There's all these people and creatures and being, all this, all this worship is taking place. They're singing about the beauty and the glory of Christ. And where is it located? Where is it centered? It's in a throne room. And if there's a throne, what's that mean? There's a king. That's because Jesus is the everlasting king. He's not going to fall away because of adultery. He's not going to get tangled up in foreign wives. He's not going to die like all the kings of Israel. He's not going to lose the law. He is the good, the everlasting, the righteous king. And if he's king, he is Lord of all. And so there we have it. Jesus fulfills all of the covenants. Or we could say it like Paul. All of his promises find their yes and amen in him. Amen, church? I know it's a dizzying whirlwind. I've grappled with it a lot. Lots of covenants, lots of references, lots of connections, lots of foreshadowing. But I hope you're able to see more of the big picture I want to ask now the question of application, right? 
What, what, what do we make of this? How do we respond to all, with all? Is this just like an academic sort of exercise? Is this like for Bible scholars, right? People with glasses. What do we do with this? Now, we've made lots of application in the 10 weeks prior, and I hope you've benefited from those. And we can make many more, but tonight I want to draw your attention to two. Number one is this. Behold the glory of Christ. That's applicable. There are many truths in the Bible that when discovered, our best and only response is simply to marvel. I think of these instances in the Bible where uh, where humans came face to face with, uh, with, with God. And what happened? Fell to the ground. They just marveled. They weren't like, well, how do I apply the transfiguration to my life, right? They just fell down and worshipped. Friends, we need more of that in our lives. We need to remember that, well, think of it like this. Remember tonight we began with the illustration of just checking the score, just knowing the outcome. But we want to watch the game. We want to slow down enough to see each play in this great victory that has been won by Christ. Because he deserves every ounce of credit for every deed he has ever done. Uh, a few months ago, I finished reading the book Friday Night Lights. It's a classic account of what it's like for a small town to center around football um, in, in West Texas in the 1980s. And you have these grown men who spend their entire adulthood reminiscing over their mediocre high school football performance. Everybody in the town remembered every single play and they would relive their mediocrity again and again and again and squeeze every ounce of glory from those highlight reels. How much more glory does Jesus deserve for every single deed he has ever done? You got time to consider it? Rewind the tape. Slow down. For all the promises of God find their yes and amen. Paul says that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, go back, see how the promises are fulfilled, and then let your heart say yes, amen, God needs to get some glory from this. And then give it to him. See and behold the glory of Christ. When you see how the promises are fulfilled in Christ, we should respond by uttering our, a, our amen. What does amen mean? That's true, right? That's true. <laughs> we need to respond by saying that is true. Christ is glorious again and again and again. It is not enough for you to stake some flag over your life. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, he is glorious. That's enough for me. Delight again and again and again. And when you run out of things to delight in God over, guess what? There's more. Keep looking. Perhaps, you know, it's, it's one thing to have heard of the fame of Michael Jordan, right? You, I'm sure you've heard of his fame. Maybe you've even seen some highlight reels. Maybe you got to see him play in person. But it is an altogether different thing to have witten, witnessed history, I mean, Michael Jordan's glory is historical. 
It, it, it is one thing to know that Michael Jordan is a six-time NBA champion, six-time finals champion, five-time NBA MVP, 14-time All-Star, 10-time NBA scoring champion, not to mention an NCAA champion, Tar Heels. But oh, how different is it to see, to see it, to, to have seen it all, not a part, but all of it. Michael Jordan's glory has history. But how much more does the glory of Christ have? How much more history? Jordan's basketball career, 17 years. 17 years. Think about the ancient of days. Right? When God sets record, he has, when he sets records, he has to use the stars as a reference point. Jordan's fine with five-digit integers. Not God. Jesus himself is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And it's for, through him and by him and for him that all things were created. He holds all things together. So we should see his glory and marvel. I'll ask you to turn one more place. Romans chapter 5. Look, look there and see. Let's just see this together. I hadn't noticed this quite in this way until today. Romans 15, verse 8. Paul is really concerned that we make this connection. Look what he says, starting in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, right? David, Abraham, Isaac, Maybe David, or, uh, yeah. In order that the Gentiles might, what? Glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, right, son of David, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. Friends, do you see, Jesus came to prove. He came to show, to display the faithfulness of God. Why? So that people all over the world would glorify God for his mercy. God deserves mercy for how he has redeemed. Or he, God deserves glory for how he has redeemed the world. And it has been on display tonight. And according to Paul, that should make your heart sing. Some of us should go home and write poems. Some of us should go home and write new songs. Charlie's not here. Maybe he'll get wind, right? To go home and write songs inspired by this. The whole design of this system is to lead to the celebration and exaltation of God. My prayer throughout this series has been that when it comes to your reasons to worship God, this would be added to your repertoire. He is the covenant-keeping God. Should we not also marvel at how committed God is to his plan of redemption? Right? I was thinking, thinking about this. I, I get tired trying to trace all this. Um, I, can, you know, I know it's hard to follow sometimes. Our heads spin just reading it. And if that's true, how marvelous must the mind of God be to design it and fulfill it? 
Doesn't such a complex plan, woven across millennia, doesn't that show us how committed God is to saving his people? Have you thought of that? And doesn't that give you confidence? Friends, when you think of your salvation, don't just think of you and God. Don't just think of your little individual life as if it's the only thing in the world and God, but rather recognize that you are a stone in the temple, built from every age of history, every tongue, every tribe, every nation. I know we want to believe that we are, that I am, a very special snowflake. Unique, set apart from all the other boring snowflakes of the world. But friends, should we not marvel at the scope of God's plan? Of all the obstacles in history, through all the forces of evil, Satan has spent so much time planning and scheming to stop God and he's put it into effect all throughout the ages and then all of the sin of the world and then the cross himself None of that kept God from accomplishing his plan. None of it kept him from seeking you. None of it kept him from saving you. Satan tried to stop him, and he lost. Don't you see that he loves you? Don't you see he has a plan for your life and for your suffering? Don't you see that he will not leave you as you are? In your sin... And in your suffering, and in your heartache, friends, our God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And so for all who hide in him, we are totally and eternally safe. I think of Jesus' words to his disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. And friends, nothing can take it away. So rejoice. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy. That where we are bewildered, that bewilderment would turn to marvel. So that you would receive the glory from our lives. Let it lead to us trusting you more. And proclaiming your glory among the nations. In our neighborhoods, in our homes, and down our streets. So that you would receive all the glory you deserve. And we eagerly await the day where we will see you. And to that end we pray, come quickly Lord come quickly. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.